clubhouse. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And tonight we're here to discuss the eighth episode of the third season of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. This one is called Unfit. We had some world building in this one, Paul. One of my favorite moments was when we got a chance to see how are the handmaids matched with the families and the absolute eye rolling that goes on with the lazy Susan of handmaids that has to go flying around that room. Yeah, we got to see a little cabal of ants, which I guess we kind of figured would probably be the case. Like, it kind of reminds me like how, you know, when you're at the at the hospital, how it's like doctor business is doctor business and nurse business is nurse business. Okay. So it's kind of like the relationship between commanders and, and ants. I'm not making like a male-female connection. I'm making a... Right, just different jobs. Segregated kind right. of thing where they're connected, but not really. You know what I mean? Understood. So ants take care of ant business and that is the assigning of, of handmaids, but... I thought the Lazy Susan was, I don't know, sort of a... It was like a a, wheel of chance. Yeah, right. That kind of spooked me out, right? It made you feel like it was like, where does your fate lie? No one knows. And it just like round and round. It's like the same sort of thing Mad Max had when he had to ride away on the donkey with the big mask on. I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking Mad Max and the donkey scene. I know. You know I wasn't. It's the same... Same, same. <laughs> Lydia and the donkey. Exactly. Yeah. And and I appreciated, though, that the ants were, like, growing weary of the families being so picky and things like, oh, we don't want a person of color. And that one ant was like, oh, like her eyes went like ka-chunk, like when they rolled because she was just like, I'm so over it. And they were like, this family's quick to anger. So we're going to need somebody who, like, I don't know, appreciates getting smacked around. Like, I don't even know what the hell. Like, can you imagine having to place somebody with someone you know is going to be, like, abusive like that? Well, the way the... I mean, they're trying to to grow new children, but they're not really actively trying to get a whole lot more adults. They do those reclaiming. Is that the right word? Salvaging. Salvaging. They do those salvagings, but those don't seem to go that well or that often. So they're just trying to mix and match the same families with the same handmaids and it sounds like they they're all sick of each other yeah it 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 makes me feel like it's like that time of the summer when it's like everybody's so bored and you've already mixed and matched you're like well you could you could go like have a snack well you could go swimming well you could go like and you're like trying to like mix like activities together and everyone's like we're over it it's not a thing anymore be done were you surprised to see the ants have some sort of brown liquor available to them a little bit yes i i wanted to say maybe it was like sherry but also maybe brandy or something i don't know really i don't know my the liquors that come in a decanter like that my my favorite liquors are clear so i'm not sure what you put in with that stopper but but I don't, yeah, I was surprised and I was surprised that they would partake because it seems very like this is serious business, right? But they were treating it so much more like it was just like just trading, I, I don't know, like playing cards. poker or something, <laughs> playing poker maybe. Yeah, baseball cards. I like that analogy. It's just it, there was a sense of just like the stakes were just like, Meh, you know, let's just get this done. It almost seems like the process would would better merit having a representative of the families there because the ants were really not overly interested in, they're interested in trying to keep the peace and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know, it seemed like, seemed like one-sided to me. 
I guess, I mean, they had their, their folder paperwork. And so I guess that was their two cents. It was like in written form, you know, of what, what they were looking for. So God, I can't really even imagine the process. I mean, shoot, as a person who really enjoys just making the decision by myself and not being, you yeah, know, like she asks no one, I really prefer not to have any input. She doesn't want input. <laughs> then I would, it would drive me nuts to have like, okay, now like, you know, Mrs. Jojo is going to come in here and tell me what you're like. I'd be like, get your ass out of here. All right. I'm just going to figure it out. You get Joni and you'll be happy. Exactly. And you'll be grateful for it. Won't you now? The other aspect of world building that we get is all through Lydia's backstory. This is the first real exposure we've had to Lydia's backstory. We've had just a sentence here or there exposing, I think that she smoked beforehand or something like that. But yeah, that, very minuscule. Very, Yeah, not exactly gigantic personality type defining um, moments. We have a special treat this week. We got an interview with Aunt Lydia herself. And Dowd spoke with us for a few minutes over the phone this past week. And she has a lot to say about her performance and what she used to motivate the performance, not only this week, but throughout the, the series. And what was most exciting to us is that we had been able to see the episode in advance. So we had a chance to ask her specifically about the backstory and about what she thought of Lydia and what her motivations were with how she handled Noel and Ryan. And we're just going to let her explain it to you guys in our own words. <laughs> Hello, everybody. How are you? Hi, Hello. How we're are doing. You? We're doing well. Well, um, my name is Paul Daly. I'm here with my wife Caroline Daly, and together we have a podcast that we've been covering *Handmaid's Tales* since it started. We were excited just based off the book and wanted to cover it from day one. So we've been covering it since Isn't that then. Wonderful. And Thank you. We even uh, we even helped start one of the one of the largest *Handmaid's* Facebook groups on uh, that that's going right now. Wow. We have loved you, Anne, so much since The Leftovers. We actually saw you at ATX. Thank you. Um, and just adore you so much. You play such Thank complex you. characters. Oh, you're very welcome. You you play such these, these women. They, they could be so villainous, but yet we just love you. And I feel like it's you, it's Anne, that brings that magic. And I'm so curious, what drew you to this part of playing Lydia after playing something like Patty, and and what do you bring to that character so that we don't just think like this is the villain of the show and I hate you so much? How do you do it? How do you make us still have sympathy for that character? I just thought of something which may make no sense at all, but this is a movie from a long, long time ago, and this just came in my head. Eric Roberts played the most heinous person. He murdered his wife in it, and I remember my heart breaking for him. And I thought, how did he do that? Not that I think of him in the playing of Lydia or Patty, for that matter, but just the notion that if you approach the character without judgment, in the hope of understanding why she is the way she is, bearing in mind the question, who hurt her, then you have a good chance of finding some humanity. Do you know what I mean? We do. You it's, do it's sort of, I think well. Thank you very much for that. It means the world. Because Patty broke my heart. She still does to this day. And, and Lydia, I don't know if, have you guys seen the Backstory episode? We did. We're going to we ask you a couple questions about that. Because I, I thought the writers did a very good job of choosing a way in. You know? I mean, you tell me. I'm obviously... Um, I'm not the one to ask necessarily. We had a we had a sense that that she had something to do with taking care of others before 
before the, the fall. My guess was something with older people, like not old people, more like college age maybe, like that to kind of get in that, that age range of the handmaids. So school teacher was, was pretty close. If they would have said manager of the refrigerator department at Sears, I'd have been like, ah, that doesn't make any sense. But yeah, I, I thought that it made a lot of sense. Isn't it funny? I had thoughts about her past, you know. They were all about repression and religion, which I think probably is part of the picture for sure. But what I loved about the writer's choice had to do with heartbreak as well and the shame around sexuality and uh, the power that has over a human being's life. I mean, think of what could have been for her. But she yeah. could not let shame fall away. And it just broke my heart this morning a bit because having known her now for three years and wondering really what do we imagine her path to be. And I think maybe after this incident with the principal and this boy and taking him from mother and not really being able to own her part in that because she can't see it, I think that's probably when she went to older students, perhaps high school, and saw the kind of promiscuity and the language and the dressing as if, as if they're prostitutes and no relationship to God. I think that's when she really doubled down on the rigid approach to what is acceptable in life, if that makes sense. You can it see that progression does. from where, where she starts with uh, the backstory in, in uh, episode eight. Prior to episode eight, though, we didn't really have much to go on with, with Lydia. Did, were you privy to any of that before this season, or did you have to kind of make up your own backstory and drive the performance with that? Well, you know what Bruce Miller, who was our showrunner, told me season one, that he imagined that Lydia was a teacher. She was very good with a room full of students. She knew how to get control of her room. She knew when, what, what uh, part discipline plays. Uh, in the involved of a human being. But you know what an what actor does, uh, of course, is to draw on his or her own experience. And having been raised uh, in a Catholic home and educated by Catholic sisters, I had some insight uh, into Lydia. Not that sisters were ever cruel or violent, ever. But they had a very, very strong work ethic that they expected. They have a reputation for that, yeah. Yeah, and again, intelligent, educated women who made sure you understood that, listen, you're not any different from anybody else. When there's a job to be done, you do it to its completion before you move on to anything else. Little things like that really helped in deciding how to approach Lydia. Then, of course, the writers, you know, their own sense of, uh, of who she is. I was not privy to it before the season. Uh, I got okay. the episode maybe three weeks to a month before shooting the episode, which is quite typical. Sure, Elizabeth sure. Moss is an executive producer, so she is privy much sooner, but I'm not, you know, so I get the script along with the cast, then there are a series of rewrites, but there were, there were very few for this episode. And as I said, I thought that the writers chose something, a very beautiful way in. It's not her whole backstory, but it is a, a very telling part of her life. I think that she then moved on to a much more severe approach from hurt, from shame. It made sense to me. It fit in with, with, with the Lydia I've known for three years, if that makes sense. Can we get into the episode a little bit, like into the, some of the, the, the details? We were really struck with the approach that Lydia took with Noelle. 
And we were trying to discern, and we want to know really Anne's opinion of it, as opposed to maybe Lydia's opinion. Do you feel like Lydia legitimately invited Noelle and Ryan over to her home and started getting to know them out of an honest desire to help change Noelle's life and and make things better for Ryan? We were wondering after the fact, we, when you're watching, it feels that way. But, but then after, when you see the emergency, you know, taking of the child, we stopped and wondered, wow, was she always wanting to get into no, Noelle's world a little so. more? No, I, I think that she, it was genuine, absolutely. And, and what I think what she connects, when, again, the power of shame. I mean, some people don't allow it to infest their psyche, but Lydia is not one of those people. I think from a very early age, shame was the way you learn. You know, I think her mother was not present. I think her father, though he may have been a loving father, was very strict, etc. And the relationship of religion and sex to me is a very shaky one. So, Noelle, you know, I think genuinely seeing, and this is true for how she feels about the handmaids, Lydia is interested in helping, in teaching, in showing a better way to live one's life. That is genuine. And that's the case with Noelle. Where it gets tricky with Noelle is that she introduced to Lydia the notion of trying again. Lydia's marriage failed. The shame in that, are you kidding? When you're a religious person, you can bet there was some annulment that went on, and it came from high up in the church, just so Lydia could proceed. Now, Noelle introduces, hey, get back out there. You know, you're such a kind person. Come on now, let me show you about some makeup. Let's get out there. And so it's a new thing for Lydia. She actually puts the makeup on Lydia. Lydia's never had that kind of relationship. She's never let the walls down. Noelle allows that, and she's sweet, you know? And I realized, hey, she just had a bad upbringing. She doesn't realize she can't be giving her kid junk food and putting chips in the lunch. That's not the best. Let me show you a better way. And I bet you can do it. But when it gets to the point where Lydia takes over and goes further sexually than the principal is ready for. The shame shuts so many doors and she associates her own advancing sexually with the effect that Noelle had on her. You guys did such a beautiful job. I was going to ask you about that makeup scene in particular. As, you know, she's putting on the makeup, you're acting, the way that it's coming out of your face, like the vibe that's coming out of you is like, you know, you're, you're, you're practically melting under that makeup brush. Did you have that's any it. thought in your head of what you were trying to portray? Well, and again, Mike Barker, who's a phenomenal director, I love him so much. We were talking about how it's a kind of sensual experience, not sexual, but it's sensual in the sense that no one's ever touched her like that and taken care and looked at her skin and gotten up close and the actress was just so lovely. It, it just, it, 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 it part of that she just had, had no familiarity with. Uh, and, and you know how that is? I remember one. My grandfather had a very tough upbringing. And as a result, he was a little tough with his kids. And I remember he came to visit once, and he didn't know what to do with the love. And like Lydia, I said, wait a minute. But, 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 but Noelle does not overwhelm her. 
Yes, I love that you use the word sensual. Yes, absolutely. I use the words, like when I was discussing it with Paul, I said, I felt like Noelle was, was seducing her, but I don't mean that in a sexual way. I mean, like, you know, it was just, she was melting yes, into exactly. the idea. She was being seduced into the idea of giving it another try with no words at all. You could tell it's just the way you moved your eyes, your mouth, everything. You could just tell that that is how you were feeling. You portrayed that beautifully. Thank you. Thank you, honey. So with both Patty Levin and with Lydia, you have that sort of before and after break of where we get to see their backstory. And we felt like, especially with Patty, like there was a complete, almost just, she spoke differently, even it felt like after we saw her backstory. As an audience, we just took her in so differently. Do you feel like as we move forward with Lydia, will you expect that audiences or you as an actor trying to portray anything differently now that we have seen what motivates Lydia, how, how shame is in her background and, you know, maybe have a little more sympathy for her. Do you feel like you will play that differently? Uh, no, I, I think the consistency is, is important. My hope is that there will be some understanding of her. I love that. When you see someone, even, even someone you think, oh my God, they're just horrid. And then you learn something about the pain they've experienced or the loss they've experienced. Your heart Thank you so much for your time today. We very much appreciate it, and we just absolutely love you. Do you know when you're at ATX, we still think about your kiddo ordering the camping supplies off of Amazon, the story you told. We were, like, laughing and laughing about that. So. Yeah, I wanted <laughs> yeah, to ask, to like, did he ever get that. to go camping? Did he survive? <laughs> yeah, it didn't have, it happened in the, in the backyard, you see. We didn't get too oh, far excellent. into the wilderness. Put it that way. Oh, <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, we so appreciate your time. We hope we get to talk to you Thank again in the you future. So you are time. wonderful. Thank you. Well, have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. So that was amazing. Getting a chance to actually talk to and out and find out exactly what was going on on set during those scenes made me feel like there is no amount of analysis you and I could even attempt to give this backstory that isn't already well covered with Anne's answers to us. So we are going to just like move right on with the exception of one little nugget that we didn't talk to Anne about. And we want to see if you guys as listeners picked up on this. She mentioned that the whole thing went private, meaning what exactly? Does she mean the legal system in the United States prior to the Gilead takeover? Does she mean child protective services or the laws or the or the agencies that overlook those those kinds of policies in a given state? It's very muddy. But, but we're really interested in, in looking at that, you guys. So if you guys picked up on anything, it was that whole part where she was doing the, the emergency evacuation orders. And we believe that that line, that things were privatized, we believe that that means that that man was working for some private company now, not like the U.S. government was taking over these children, but some sort of private company. And I think that that's going to start explaining to us a little bit about how perhaps Gilead got information and maybe is still getting information about those children. Because these would have been a private company perhaps by some of those commanders it was set up i don't know but now they're get, there was like a funnel to like unwanted children this is a could be a very foundational little piece that we got here sort of like how there are privatized prisons now and that's that's an that's a whole area of law enforcement that has been revolutionized by the idea that private prisons can can provide the same service cheaper 
than can the the previously publicly run prisons. So this seems kind of related to that, you know? And it also separates, for me, the U.S. government from its citizens. Meaning, like, we're accustomed as citizens that if you're going to deal with anything like that, that, that it would be just between us and the government. But if there was a third party that started, then that sort of started, like, separating the government, the citizens, and a third party. And you could kind of see how that, if you kept teasing that out and teasing that out, where the U.S. government got kind of pushed out of what Gilead's main goal was, was children, getting children and, and creating more children. And it's somehow, if that came from a privatized first step. Wow. You know, that's, that's things that we've actually heard a lot of things. Privatizing education is something that we've heard a lot about getting away from, you know, the, a public school education and going more into these privatized concepts. It's all very interesting and, and definitely gives you that little bit of like hair up on the back of your neck. Like, what did I just hear? The shaky argument that she made about the uh, moral weakness as being, being right. the symptom that was enough to get the the child taken away. I can, I can understand if this is already during the decline of the birth rate, so there's fewer children in the schools, so they're tre- being treated a little more like, let's be careful with all these guys because right. there's not very many they're of them. They're little fragile eggs. And so, you, but you could see where within a privatized organization, having just a single man be the arbiter of what is a moral weakness is, is so gray, you know, and the things that she was listing was just the kind of shit that single moms have to do. They have to work long hours and then- Right, or and, get fast food or something. Right, exactly. Just to, just to make things, you know, flow in a day. That makes sense. I really focused in on Lydia's use of shame in the entire explanation of why she felt this child needed to be taken away. And it's something that Anne spoke a lot about, the power of shame. That could have been the title of this episode, really. Yeah, that theme, I want to say, just carried throughout all the rest of our characters. I feel like she is definitely somebody who is motivated by shame and psychological, emotional turmoil in her life. Let's get into June here because she is somebody who we said last week absolutely was going to have to face the music in some way or another concerning all of her actions. And we didn't know how was it that Lydia was going to punish her. We knew she she was going to be punished for things that she had been doing. And we knew that it had to be something we hadn't seen exactly before because they couldn't just like cut her hand off. You know, she's too high profile. She's being used in this negotiations with Canada. So they can't like cut her tongue out or have her be all bleeding or have her be, you know, anything really that, that shows that she's been harmed in some way. Those things can't happen. So wow. The power of shame, Paul, the shame circle. Something we hadn't seen since season one, when it was during the red center indoctrination type flashbacks specifically with Janine yes there was a lot of shaming having to do with her I don't even know if it's promiscuity as much as it's just within the lens of Gilead and the handmade system her lifestyle was what they considered promiscuous absolutely so. and the concept of June having to actually own her part in all of this which I actually thought was extremely fair 
the way that it had to be laid out was so painful, but at the same time, it's stuff that all of us have been saying this whole time. Like Hannah is in a safe place. And unless you are actually ready to pluck her out and put her in a car and drive away, all these other antics you're doing, literally wailing at the wall outside of her school, all you're doing is harming Hannah. You're just creating a more complicated life for her. So when they started saying to her, she was being loved by a nanny who absolutely was doing everything for her. And now that's been taken away. She had friends. She had a loving community. She had a safe, a safe bed to be in at night. And now all of those things have been taken away from her because of you, because of you just basically anticking. Like there was no productive thing that came from June doing the things she's been doing. After after the conversation with Anne and her focus on shame as such a motivator for Lydia, now that we're talking about it, does the shame circle seem like maybe a program that Lydia is piloting of her own design? I, yes. And also I want to say that shame is contagious. I feel like it's the type of thing that misery loves company. And if you feel ashamed of something, the major thing that you want to do is make someone else feel, make someone else feel ashamed. And that's exactly what happens in this. So you have Lydia who's, who's carrying her own burden of shame on her shoulders, passes it on to any person, whether it be Janine or June. And then as soon as June starts feeling the heat of that spotlight, there's only one move to do. And that is to shoved the spotlight onto someone else and she turns to of Matthew. Did you expect her to tell that particular secret? Did you expect that that was what she was going to quote unquote, like get off her chest? No, I did not. Actually, that seemed like kind of a lightweight kind of comment compared to what she could have said because she could have said anything and they would have just carried on with the sinner, sinner, sinner. You're exactly right. Like, it's not like anyone was looking for evidence to to the to the <laughs> no. confession, right? <laughs> right? And let's talk about a little bit of the buildup to this. So, the and ever since the previous episode where June has felt completely betrayed by of Matthew, the rest of the handmaids have fallen on Team June and are completely being mean girl to the max. Tell them to cool it. <laughs> oh my God. That line when it says that, oh my God, the cool it line. Oh, that is like so quintessential, like Mrs. Garrett, right? <laughs> cool it. I just freaking love it. So, but that whole thing, that whole spitting in the cup before handing it to her, the whole, the knocking something over and being like, of oh, Matthew, you're so clumsy. I mean, and on one hand, like we can kind of at home be like, oh my God, and kind of raise your eyes. But think about the vulnerable position these women are in. And now when your own inner circle of people, the ones who are supposed to have your back in some regard are now out to get you. Can you even imagine the frayed freaking nerves you would have if every time you turned around, somebody knocked something off a desk and was like, of Matthew, how dare you? Like, I feel like you would be like in one of those horror movies where you're just like turning and turning and turning and things are like screaming in your face. It is really no wonder to me how of Matthew gets to the place that she gets to. It's similar. In fact, at least maybe half of what is motivating that final scene with her could be related to Janine, how she was like, I thought this is what you wanted me to do. So of Matthew tattled because she thought that's was the right thing to do about, you know, the Mackenzie's and all that kind of stuff. Right. right? So she thought she was playing her part. And then all the other women shun her mm-hmm. for doing her her duty. 
it's yeah. I mean, we go back to the, again, like two episodes or three episodes ago where you have Lydia being like, I thought this was the role I was supposed to play or Janine. I thought this is the role I was supposed to play. And now you're all looking at me. You're all, you're all judging me. You're all making me feel like I'm doing something wrong. What in the hell? I, I think that that little nugget though, is what we have seen make all of them like hold their head. Like, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. How do I walk the line? How do I do what's right and not be shunned or or judged or shamed. How, how do I do this? It turns out there's really no good way to do this. And when you layer on the fact that of Matthew is pregnant and the death of, of Andy's baby, which what did you feel about all of those extra scenes? Well, they got to keep the message about about the low birth rate and the likelihood of, of something going wrong during birth. They have to keep that going, unfortunately, until they decide not to. Whatever's wrong with the world, maybe it'll stop at some point. But they've got to keep it, keep the show honest. And in some, you know, we've we pointed out with June not really suffering so many consequences. They can't lighten up everywhere. Yes, <laughs> I know? agree. And I think that it also reinforced a couple of other things. For those who maybe forgot what the birth scenes look like, we had, you know, the wife sitting behind the handmaid, that whole part. We had when the when the baby does pass and nobody tries to do any type of medical intervention at all. They just put a towel over the baby and they don't do anything. Again, there's like that kind of whole like, oh yeah, we don't do anything to save babies in this land, as weird as that is. Babies get born with their cord wrapped around their neck. That happens. You know, they... they they didn't even attempt to resuscitate the baby at all. And then you have the reminder again, just reinforcing how all the handmaids like went on top of Avandi and hugged her and just got around her. They, they, they reiterate the word sisters with them as if like, you know, we are together. We're a team. And all of that just helped remind us, solidify that of Matthew being shunned was a really big deal. Your sisters, those who are like responsible for holding you literally are shunning you. And you have that ultimate snap in the grocery store. That scene I thought was extremely well done in terms of just the angst on her face. You mean when she loses it? Yeah. And that whole like picking up the gun and then just like her eyes like darting around the room. Where do you go with this? What, I mean, you've gone this far and we had this moment with Emily when she snapped and it was like, she jumped in the car and it was like, what are you going to do with the car now? Are you just going to point it in a direction and drive as far as you can? And she surprised us by driving around that circle, you know, (laughs) running over the guard. That was a total surprise move. And in this case, did, did you think she was going to shoot Lydia? Did you think she was going to kill herself? Did you think she was going to kill Janine or June? Or what did you think was going to happen? I thought she'd shoot somebody. And I and I thought she was, give her another half a second and she was going to shoot Lydia. I definitely thought Lydia because we got Lydia's backstory. And if reality TV tells me anything, once you get somebody's backstory, they're like ripe for vote out. You know, they're like the next ones to be cast off the island. So I was thinking, well, now that we got her backstory, is this going to end with at least like a serious gunshot wound where like we may not know for the next couple episodes whether or not Lydia is going to make it or not. It's very cool camera work. Did you notice like the, I think they probably had a GoPro or something small stuck on the, on the nose of the of the gun. So when she swung it around, the gun stayed exactly perfectly still, but you could see kind of this world whirling around her, her head from behind. Reminded me of a lot of the camera work from this season where they are providing us this sort of like additional perspective into what's going on in that character's mind. 
for instance, like with the Lydia background scenes, they're all hazy and they're, and there's, and the focus is so, what's the word is shallow where only they are in focus. Cause there's all those beads and all the other stuff. So you're speaking about Lydia's backstory. Yeah. So like when we're at the new year's Eve party and it's right. like, you can't even discern what year it is. And it, things are very, like you said, very vague. Like it's yeah. like, there was a date with the principal and we got that amount. But then other than that, like real information around them, it was like the story was being told through feelings and not facts. Exactly. And that they were buried and that they may not be exactly as they were presented. Well, because they're feelings and not facts, they were probably an accurate depiction of how she was feeling. But, you know, if you just had like a surveillance camera you know, instead that, that offered no, you know, zoom ins or, you know, and it did allow you to see like what was going on in the rest of the room. Maybe we would have seen him like being nervous about her coming in the first place or, you know, all types of things that would have given us more understanding of the overall yeah. story here. You know, I, for me, I, I'm not somebody who's easily shamed. I think for the most part, it takes a lot for me to, it's, I'm, I'm embarrassing. Like the person who has to go back and be like, Oh my God, I'm, I should have been, I should have been ashamed of saying that or doing that like I'm usually the one that is like kept in hindsight in the moment I rarely get super embarrassed to the point of like not being able to carry on but definitely Lydia has that quality about her as does of Matthew to the point where that shame that feeling specifically of this accusation of not wanting her baby and or the realization that your baby may die and we're just going to put a towel on it and or no one's going to help that baby, you know, if it's in distress when it's born and or if it's a girl, it gets to be a handmaid like you. Like all of the realities are really not really factual, but feelings of like insane, overwhelming, got to get out of here, you know, got to do something different. Did you expect her to be shot? I expect her to be taken down. You did? Yeah. The dragging her out, holy smokes. <laughs> very uh, visceral, the way that you know, the blood trail, oh, the men are just very matter of fact sound. about it. It's like, there's no reason to do like an investigation or bring in guys with like white coats or anything or like that. Or have any respect for her body, Paul. You know, what we do when there's a death is we cover it with a blanket. We cover it with a white sheet and we don't let anyone see the dead body. You know, we put it on a gurney and we wheel it away. But this was like, everybody can, it's, she's just nothing. It's like you would drag away an animal on a farm. She's a you vessel. Know? Exactly. So I, all of it was like, oh my gosh, so overwhelming. There was one, a part of this little, of the story that I want to make sure that we hit on. And that is the business going on with Lawrence and June. There is something there that is, that is new and fresh and a little bit weird. And I do want to ask you about this. Initially, we have June going to ask Lawrence about Hannah. And he's like quick to be like, I don't know anything and no one knows anybody. Nobody, nobody has a clue what you're talking about. And don't ask me ever again. Right. Quick, like, and like door shut in face. But after of Andy's baby dies and he comes upstairs and he's like trying to somehow have a little bit of rapport there. I feel like we missed something. Like there was an edit of something or something. You mean the way that she snaps at him? And- I mean the way that suddenly he sees value in her. The way that he's like, well, if you could maybe like not mention that to Mrs. Lawrence, but you seem really good with her. And like, if you could go have tea with her or maybe play some cards or something with her this afternoon, like suddenly he's inviting her 
into hanging out with the wife. That feels so odd when last week's episode ends with him being like, don't talk about my wife, them having this like massive, like, you know, moment. And I thought, oh my God, he's like rip shit at her. He's going to come at her like a terror. And like, really, that just kind of dissipated, like the whole taking her for a walk thing Why would he now be saying, hey, would you like to spend more time with my wife? When the last second we saw them was him returning the wife to the bedroom because it had been such an insane experience with her. Oh, did we miss something? Am I crazy? You would have needed a scene showed her, quote unquote, doing better post walk. Or 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 Mrs. Lawrence asking for June. Maybe her maybe there being a couple lines where he she she says something like, When I'm with June, it's the only time I feel like my old self. Or some something. It only had to be a couple of lines, a couple of something, but that felt very disjointed and, and also plays into that whole ending scene of the buildup there of Lydia turning and talking to June and saying, Hey, by the way, we're gonna reassign you and June being like, I don't understand. I thought the Lawrences were like into me and like wanted me to stick around again it felt like all like oh (laughs) you know what is happening would mr lawrence allow her to leave would you not is this gonna not matter now that there's this big drama with of matthew are we gonna forget about it what the heck Mm. i feel like they took the lawrence household and like threw it up in the air like a bunch of spaghetti like i'm like what just happened do you remember the scene from mel's diner at the very beginning when they do the credits and laverne the one um waitress is trying to open the box of straws and she goes open and it goes like and it like flies everywhere do you know that part sort of like an infomercial where someone's trying to use like like a juice container right and and they're all thumbs with it it just <laughs> explodes into They're a, like, a Have you ever not been able to open your juice? Like, yeah. Just like that, I felt like that was the Lawrence household. Like, it went like, just like everywhere. Like, juice and or straws on Mel's Diner. Whichever. I had to predict. I bet they don't separate, because I think need Lawrence to finish out this season at least. I agree. Not only that, but like, I feel like we have so much unfinished business with that couple and the power he supposedly wields that it seems ridiculous to suddenly just like drop that storyline and bounce us to somewhere else, doesn't it? This story has always remained very intimate, you know, in terms of like the cast and Mm -hmm. like the number of players with the Waterfords out of pocket now in DC. I just don't see us adding yet another commander into the mix. Meanwhile, they've already given us a very interesting commander with with, without much resolution to how he is or why he is or anything like that. There's got to be something else that's going to go bananas with the Lawrences. Like this just isn't enough. We like we're it feels like we're like right at like our tippy toes or like right out the edge of something happening with them. But it's not there yet. Like we haven't gotten there yet. You know, I was going to say something real raunchy there, Paul, but I decided not to. We're probably his, better off. His face is like, mm. I'll, I'll say it like cryptically. It's like when you're like almost there and then somebody's like pulling back and you're like, what are you doing? Just like finish. It feels like that. Like, what are you doing? Like, I thought we were like doing something with the Lawrences here. Like, why are we suddenly pulling back off of this? And like, I, what is happening? So I really want to understand that. I really need to have some understanding of what the hell is going on with June because she's going to be beyond just someone trying to survive in this world. She's turning into this like vengeful, hateful creature. This whole idea of enjoying people's suffering is a fresh hell for everyone around her. But at least she's self-aware. Yeah, so there's that, right? She's all que sera, sera right? She doesn't <laughs> she even is. give a hoot. <laughs> que sera, sera, after that 
after the killing of, of, of Matthew like that is like an opposite. Like last time I think I saw that was probably at the end of like a madman or something like that. You yes. Know? Yes. So. I love that. Yes. I think it was. I, I also, I want to, I want to call out our friends over at Shuffle Online because they wrote a great article about the overuse of the close up on Elizabeth Moss's face specifically for the endings of every episode. And I wanted to holler out to our Shuffle Online friends and say, you guys, that was a very poignant, yeah, right on a nail on the head type of comment that like, you're right. Like there needs to be some other change-ups here because we understand June's angst about a lot of these things, but there has to be other ways to resolve a scene than just go like zoom in on her face, fade out. Right. Fart fart smell face. Yes. There has to be something else that's going on or, or honestly the audience is already like, okay, we get it. Like we get that. She's like super distressed. Like, and then what, you know, what is going to happen next? So that's what we asked you guys. What is going to happen next? Now that we got some Lydia backstory, does this mean that she's ripe for the wall? Does this mean with a handmaid that's dead? Does that mean that she is going to be really brought under scrutiny? I mean, we can't be having this wigging out in the store. This is another handmaid actually trying to hurt other people. What in the hell is this going to look like? She's so like not in control. If a commander gets killed, if he's not in control of his household, is Lydia looking like she's not long for this world, Paul? We don't know. We don't know. Here's a fun question to finish up our episode. How did you? How did they come up with of Andy? Did you get to keep your nickname when you became like a a commander? And they'd be like, what if your nickname was like Bud or JD or something? So you have to be like of JD. Well, if it's Bubba, like of Bubba, right? <laughs> We know Bubba's, so so that's actually like a funny thing. I, I don't have a problem with JD or Chip or any of these other names, but... Of Andy. Uh, so you feel like it should have been of Andrew. Yes. Yes. I saw that somebody was asking on Gilead Online on the Handmaid's Tale Facebook page, uh, like, d- did everyone's name need to be biblical? Like, of Joseph, of Matthew, like that. And then we had this of Andy, which felt like, like you said, it was the combining of that nickname and, like, way too, like, I don't know, not biblical sounding. I'm, I know Andrew, I'm sure, is in the Bible. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it had this real sense of... Formality, whereas Andy's, yes. like... You know, of Andy, someone right. you play kickball with. Right. It did feel weird. I agree with you. It, it was odd. It was odd. Well, and now she can't even go back and be a Vandy because, you know, they're not going to want her after that debacle. Well, Andy's probably looking for a new handmaid at this point. That's what I'm saying. And like they said in the ants meeting, well, she can't go back there because of that failure. God. Drives me crazy, girls. Drives me crazy. So thank you guys so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the Ann Dowd interview, and we hope to bring you more insightful things like that. Here's an exciting little tidbit. Did you guys know that Commander Lawrence was in The Revenge of the Nerds? Go back and look. He's the blonde guy. He's the douchebag. Can you believe it? Yeah. There's another little tidbit for you. Set your VCRs. <laughs> yeah. Go get your VHS tape. Get it in your VCR. Go, go start watching a little Revenge of the Nerds. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Hot Clubhouse.